You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Well, good morning, church. While you're grabbing your seats, I'm going to take you to school. And here's what I mean by that. How many of you remember when you were in school and your teachers taught you about thesis statements? Thesis statements, they're those those one, yeah, AP English teacher, put your hand down, okay? The thesis statement is that one sentence summary you put in your paper that essentially helps your reader understand what the purpose of your paper is, right? Now, the question I have for you this morning is this, where? In your paper, were you supposed to put the thesis statement? At the beginning, right? In the introduction. See, I knew you guys were going to get that, or at least half of you would get that. I will not ask you if you did not remember. That's okay. Odds are you're not writing papers on a regular basis anymore. But yeah, you put the thesis statement at the top of the paper. Now, the reason I bring this up is because, and this may be of interest to you and others, you're like, that's what interests you? Okay. The idea of a thesis statement has been around for centuries. In fact, you can find traces of thesis statements all over ancient literature, including the Bible. And the reason I bring that up is because in the Gospel of John, the Gospel that we're going to be working through for the next few weeks, John gives us a very clear thesis statement. He tells us exactly why he wrote. The problem is, John had a terrible English teacher. Because instead of putting his thesis statement at the top of his paper, he buries it at the end. In fact, he puts it at the very end of chapter 20, but it's a thesis statement nonetheless. This statement John gives us totally unlocks his whole reason for writing the gospel. And so I'm not going to have you turn to it, but I do want you to look at his thesis statement. We'll throw it on the screen for you. Uh, It's the, the very first scripture slide. There we go. It says this, John chapter 20, starting in verse 30. Remember, this is at the very end of his gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. In other words, if you just look at this statement, you see a few things. First, John is very clear as to why he is writing. Number one, he wants you to know who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. And then second, by understanding who Jesus is, you would have cause to trust him. And in trusting him, John says, you will experience life. Now, this idea of life that John talks about is not simply biological existence. He's not just saying, yeah, you'll be, you'll just get through. No, no, no. This life, in fact, the word he uses is a rich philosophical term that taps into that life you and I have always longed for. That life that is about more than justly, more than just existing. It's about thriving, or as we say here, it's about flourishing. 
life to the very full, that life that you were created for and you've always wanted, John says that's available to you. It's just through Jesus. Now, John also says that he could have wrote any number of things about Jesus. And this makes sense. As we saw last week, John was one of the earliest disciples of Jesus. He was following this guy for like three years. He saw all sorts of crazy stuff. But when he sat down to write his gospel, he said, no, I'm going to be hyper-intentional. And so what we have is his very intentional thoughts. And in fact, this is also just quite interesting to me. There are over 37 miracles mentioned in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they mention 37 miracles of Jesus. John only tells us of seven. And of the seven that John mentions, only two are mentioned by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And that's the, the walking on water and the feeding of the 5,000. In other words, John tells us five unique stories that the other gospel writers don't touch on. And the reason John does it is he wasn't just saying, well, here's a miracle for a miracle's sake. John was very intentional that the miracles he chose were, as he says, signs. And a sign, as you know, points to something beyond itself. It's not just a miracle for a miracle's sake. It's something that you look at and you go, oh, it's pointing me beyond that. And what is it pointing us to? Who Jesus is and that he is worth trusting. I tell you that because today we're going to look at one of these miracles. We're going to look at one of these signs that John has put in here. And as we do, I want you to be mindful. This miracle was recorded for the explicit purpose of you being able to understand who Jesus is, and more importantly, that you would also learn to trust him with your life. Now, this first miracle, I have to tell you, it's a good one. It's a pretty epic miracle. In fact, it's Jesus' very first miracle, and you could even say, it's a boozy. If you're like, that doesn't make any sense, give me two minutes, okay? <laughs> give me two minutes, I'll get you there, I'll get you there. It's a pretty epic miracle, and it's easy when you look at this miracle to kind of miss what is actually going on and to think it's about this small thing when it's actually about something incredibly rich. And so this morning, I invite you to open up with me to John chapter 2, and let's look at this miracle together. John chapter 2, it is on page 724 in your Bibles, or you can get to it through the Bible app. But if you would like, page 724, or as always, you could just listen to my beautiful voice as I sing it to you. But I highly encourage you, if you can, to go ahead and follow along with us. John chapter 2. Now again, remember, the key is, this is John revealing something intentionally specific about Jesus. John chapter 2, it begins this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding between 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, I want you to fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did. 
And the master of the banquet tasted that the water had been turned into wine, but he didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everybody brings out the choice wine first and then the cheap stuff after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the very best until now. And then John follows it with this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Church, this is the word of the Lord. So here's the story. Jesus goes to a wedding with his mom and his disciples, and they run out of wine. Normal crisis, okay? They run out of wine, and so his mom goes, hey, Jesus, can you take care of this? He kind of awkwardly rebukes her, like sort of rude to her, but he does it eventually, and he ends up taking 120 gallons or more of water, and in the blink of an eye, turning them into wine. So what does this have to do with Jesus? I mean, clearly it reveals to us that Jesus is pro-alcohol, right? (laughs) That's an obvious inference from the passage. I mean, more importantly, we have learned through this beautiful passage that Jesus is a walking wine cooler. Don't worry. If you're running low, we got Jesus. No big deal. It totally gives new meaning to this idea that he is the life of the party, right? But there's got to be more to it than this, right? No. Let's pray. <laughs> Just seeing if you're paying attention. Just seeing if you're paying attention. Of course, there's more to it. In fact, I would argue there, there's so many layers to this. I'm only going to touch on two. Today And if you want to go a lot deeper, you got to come on Wednesday night because Pastor Chris is going to be able to go a little deeper into this than I will. But I want to hit on two layers in this. And what I'm going to call these layers is I'm going to call them the, the human layer and then I'll call it the spiritual layer. And what I mean by the human layer is I want you to reflect on how this miracle directly impacts the people involved. In other words, this is a wedding. This is a couple on their wedding day. They've been dreaming about this day for months, years maybe, and now something has gone totally wrong, horribly bad. Well, what are we going to do with that? And then I want to reflect on the heart of the passage, the more spiritual dimension of what's going on. Because remember, it says that the disciples saw something. The disciples, when they saw what Jesus did, saw his glory. They saw something, and what I'm going to argue they saw is this. They saw in that very simple miracle, someone upend 1,500 years of religious tradition and at the same time fulfill their greatest longings and desires. And you're going, but all he did was turn water into wine. Yeah, let me try and unpack it a little bit for you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to walk us back through the story. So if you would like, have your Bible open. I'm not going to reread it again, but I'm going to rewalk it. We're going to have the slides back up on the screen so you can at least see it. We're told as John enters into this story, or John enters us into this story, that this was at a wedding. 
right? And that it took place in Cana of Galilee. Cana was about nine miles away from Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And while we're not exactly sure why Jesus was at this wedding to begin with, we can assume by the fact that Mary, because Mary had some interest in the, 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 the wine shortage, at a minimum, Jesus was at least close family friends with this groom. And I say close family friends with the groom because in this culture, the full financial responsibility of the wedding was on the groom. And some of you are going, it should still be that way. <laughs> Especially those of you with daughters. I know. But you're thinking, okay, so they know Jesus, but what does that have to do with the wine shortage? Well, this is kind of the big deal here. See, in this culture, they were steeped in this honor-shame thing. And what would happen is if they would have run out of supplies at this wedding, not only would the groom have been looked as a cheapskate, but this would have just stuck with him forever. This would, he would have been marked for all of eternity, essentially, as the guy who couldn't, run, who couldn't provide enough supplies at his wedding. This would have stained his reputation, and wherever he went, this would have continued to linger. And to show you just how big of a deal this was, there is some evidence to the fact that had a groom run out of supplies at his wedding, there was cause, legal cause, for the bride's family to take him to court because of the shame it would have heaped on their family for simply being associated with him. This was not just some minor incident. This had huge ramifications for the groom. And so Mary, being aware of this, is conscious of it and goes, hey, Jesus, I need you to come help with this. She turns to her older son. Now, I want you to, before you just go to, yeah, duh, he's Jesus. Of course you ask him for help. Remember, he hasn't done anything up until this point. This is his very first miracle. And of all the things Mary was anticipating, when she was dreaming about some of the cool stuff that her son was doing or would do, I doubt this was at the very top of her list. You know, some random wedding in some backwater town. I can't wait for him to turn water to wine. Like, no! This wasn't on her mind. And so rather, when she turns to ask Jesus for help, you have to look at it as purely a human request. She's turning to her resourceful son and saying, hey, can you help out with this? And then Jesus is kind of rude, right? He gives this awkward response. Woman, why do you involve me? And then he brushes her off talking about how it's not the right timing of the whole thing. Now, I want to be clear. This word woman is not as rude as it originally sounds. To us, we look at this and it goes like, how dare you talk to your mother with that mouth? And I just want to point out, this is the same term Jesus does use for his mom when he's dying on the cross and makes provisions for her. Meaning, this is a woman he deeply cares about and loves. This is not just somebody he's blowing off, okay? But at the same time, yeah, this word clearly creates some sort of separation between Jesus and his mom. And as we can tell from this, he's not thrilled about helping Immediately, At least that's kind of the inference here is, ah, not my time. <laughs> but then his mom either doesn't hear him or just blows him off. I mean, you can kind of hear it going the same way. At least I don't know if this is how your relationship with your children goes, moms, or, you know, you think about this when you were with your mom. But there were times where my mom said, hey, honey, I need you to go do this. And I made some excuse. Well, I'm busy. I can't do this. And she goes, uh-huh, yeah, that's nice, dear. So you're going to take care of that? 
That's how I read it. And then, so she just tells the servants, regardless of what Jesus says, yeah, yeah, just do whatever he says. And so then Jesus decides to act. And he does something that nobody sees coming. He says to the servants, all right, I want you to go fill up these barrels. 20, 30 gallons each. We're talking 120 to 180 gallons of water. This is no small, like, trip to the store. This is a big deal. And notice what he has them fill, because this is incredibly important to the story. He doesn't just take any old barrels. He takes the jars that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. This is a very big deal. He takes the jars that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing purposes. And now he has them fill it up. He then says, all right, I want you to go take some of this and go take it to the guy who's leading the banquet. They do just that. And when the guy sips it, he goes, dang, this is the good stuff. This isn't just some cheap wine. This isn't even just some like, you know, mid-level wine. This is like deep in the cellar, thousand dollar bottle wine. This is some good stuff. This far surpasses anything that has ever come before it. This is the very best. And then John just closes the story with this. What Jesus did here was the very first sign of Galilee. See, what John tries to make abundantly clear to us is this wasn't just some cheap parlor trick. This wasn't Jesus just showing off. He was doing something incredibly intentional. He was pointing beyond himself. He was doing something to help his audience see something about who he was and that he was worth trusting. And as I said, I believe there's two things that we need to focus on today, the human level and the spiritual level. On a human level, I want you to notice this. This very first miracle about Jesus caring for a couple who has lost their wine on a wedding day, on a base level, don't miss this, on a base level, Jesus' very first miracle is all about saving face. Did you ever stop and think about that? Of all the things he could do with his very first miracle, he says, you know what, I'm just going to remove the embarrassment. Had Jesus not acted, this guy would have been heaped with shame for generations to come. But Jesus stepped in. And I know that sounds like an incredibly small detail, but that's exactly the point. See, if this story teaches us anything on a very basic level, it's this. The minute stuff, the minute, mundane, everyday activities of your life matter to Jesus. Those things that seem embarrassingly inconsequential, those things you naturally write off as beneath him, they matter to him. I really liked one way a pastor put it. Can we throw that quote up? I really like this quote. God is great not just because nothing is too big for him. Rather, God is great precisely because nothing is too small. If it's a big deal to you, it's a big deal to your God. Just stop and think about that. How often when you reflect on life, do you go, you know what, there's the sacred stuff, there's the big stuff I save for Jesus, but that everyday stuff, no, 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 I can deal with that on my own. I hold back some things because I don't want to bother him with that. That's so below him. 
But if this story shows us anything, it's that in this story we discover that Jesus cares about that boring stuff. That stuff that you naturally write off and so you can invite him into that. Jesus cares that your wedding would go off without a hitch. Just as much as Jesus cares about what type of car you need to get for your family. Where you're going to invest your money. Jesus cares about making sure you make ends meet. Jesus cares about having more pilots in Mozambique or around the world. These things that you typically write off as small or seemingly insignificant, he cares about. Nothing is below him. Is this how you engage him? I mean, it's just an interesting question. Now, I also want to be very clear about something because this is important. While I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus cares about the mundane activities of our life, this passage is not declaring that Jesus will always act to fix the problem as we desire him to fix the problem. In other words, this passage does not declare every time you run out of wine, just go fill up some in the sink and wait for Jesus to fix your problem. That's, that's not what it's getting at. There is a distinction. There is a difference. Jesus absolutely cares. And as other parts of this gospel are going to make abundantly clear, he promises to weigh in. He promises to guide. He promises to influence your questions. If you have an issue, you can lay it there, and he promises he's going to answer that. We're going to look at that more in the next few weeks. But he does not always promise to act. There is a distinct difference between Jesus being willing to influence a decision and Jesus acting on a decision. You couldn't simply, you can't just plan on inviting Jesus to all future weddings and never worrying about buying alcohol again. Okay, nobody can just do that. There is a difference. But the key is, and I don't want you to miss this, if it's a big deal to you, it's a big deal to God. God is great not just because he deals with the big stuff. Our God is phenomenal because he cares about the mundane, everyday details of our lives. Jesus cares about your interaction with that guy at Costco. I know, I bring up the guy at Costco all the time. And the reason I bring up the guy at Costco is because it's like the most basic thing I do on a regular basis, besides the fact that I spend way too much time at Costco. <laughs> There's always that guy there who's either having a bad day or walking way slower than any human should ever walk or who decides to leave their cart in the middle. And these are things that we normally blow off and we never bring to Jesus. But if anything, Jesus cares about even the most boring, mundane cart guy at Costco. And he cares about how you interact with that just as much as he cares about what books you're going to read or your dysfunctional marriage. The full gambit, bring it to him. So that's the human. That's the human level. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But as I said, I want to touch on the heart of this passage. I want to get into what's really taking place. Because if this is all we really stopped at, if this is all that the disciples saw, that Jesus is a person you could bring your baggage to and he's going to listen, all you really have at this point is Jesus is a cheap therapist. Right? Oh, you can bring any of your problems and he's going to listen and then he's going to give you advice. That's just a therapist. That's not that impressive. That doesn't reveal glory. And I'm not knocking you therapists in the room, just so we're clear on that. 
That doesn't reveal. So what did they see? Well, to answer that, i got to help you to remember the context. And I'm not just talking about the wedding, even though that's a part of it. Come Wednesday night, we'll unpack that. I mean the historical context. So you have to remember, when this wedding took place, Israel had been under foreign oppression for over 600 years. 600 years prior to this miracle, Babylon rolled up on Israel's doorstep and nothing was ever the same. Babylon came in and they destroyed the monarchy, they leveled the temple, and then they took the best and brightest of Israel and shipped them across the known world. This was called the exile. It had a tremendous effect on Israel. And while we know that 70 years later, the Babylonian exile technically ended, the Babylonians were conquered, things were still never the same for the Jews. Because after the Babylonians, the Persians took over. And after the Persians, the Greeks took over. And after the Greeks, the Romans. And despite a brief period of independence, for 600 years, Israel has lived under foreign oppression. Israel has been broken. And it's in the midst of this brokenness that the prophets continued to speak. And the prophets spoke of a day when God would act. The prophets spoke of a day when God would send someone to fix this mess. The prophets spoke of a day when God would send someone, like he did with Moses, to redeem the people from their brokenness and lead them into freedom. The prophets spoke of this day, and they said that the person who was going to do this, they called him the anointed one, or as we say, the Messiah. And they said, of all things, that when the Messiah comes, it will be a day of tremendous rejoicing and feasting and celebration, accompanied by, of all things, I kid you not, an overabundance of wine. Look at Amos chapter 9. Amos taps into this for us. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send my man, my Messiah, to fix things. And when that happens, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow over the hills. We're not talking a spilled bottle. You see this? This is a gushing torrent of wine. And what will happen? I will bring my people back from exile. They will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them. They will plant their vineyards and drink their wine. They will plant their gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And it's not just Amos. Jeremiah, Hosea, and other Jewish writers all talk about the exact same thing that when the Messiah comes, there will come with him an overabundance of wine. But that's not all they talk about. Because they also say that when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring with him this thing called the new covenant. New covenant. The old covenant, if you remember, was what Moses gave to the people. The old covenant was all about external behaviors, was all about fixing yourself on the outside so that you could remain religiously pure. The old covenant was written on um, stone tablets and hung for all of Israel to see. 
The the old covenant was all about fixing and controlling your behaviors. But as the Old Testament shows, the old covenant didn't work. All it did was drive us farther away from God because we couldn't do it. And so the prophets said the reason for that was we had a heart condition. This is what they said. They said the reason we were unable to obey wasn't because we couldn't just do the outside stuff. There was something wrong on the inside. And so the prophets spoke of a day when God in his infinite mercy would come and give us a heart transplant. When he would take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. When he would come and no longer write his covenant on the, ex, the outside, but that he would carve it into our hearts. That he would send his Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us and not just fix our actions, but more importantly, correct our intentions. See, that was the big problem. You can look good all you want on the outside. You can wash yourself up, but if you're messed up on the inside, it's naturally going to ooze out of you. And so the prophets spoke of a day when somebody would come and fix not the outside, but the inside. And so what does Jesus do in this miracle? Yeah, he brings a ton of wine. I mean, that's pretty obvious. If you tipped over 120 gallons of wine, it's going to look like a river. Okay? This is, this is a big amount of wine, sure. 180 gallons, however you want to fit. That's a lot of wine. But notice, more importantly, what does he use to accomplish the miracle? The ceremonial jars used for ritual cleansing. Those jars were not used for sanitary purposes. They didn't understand sanitation. They didn't go in and wash their hands because they thought, well, yeah, you know, you don't want to get germs. They didn't know about germs. The reason they washed the utensils was so that they would be remaining ritualistically pure. So that on the outside, things looked good. Because that's what the Old Covenant dictated. It was all about making sure you interacted well. But what does Jesus do? He takes the contents of this Old Covenant symbol the thing most closely connected to the Old Covenant at this wedding. And he says, I'm going to do something revolutionary. He takes their contents and completely transforms them. And he doesn't just transform them into wine. He transforms them into the very best wine, something that exceeded everything that had come before it. This is revolutionary. Because here's the thing, church, and this is what I want you to remember today. What John is revealing to us through this miracle, because this miracle points beyond itself, is who Jesus is and that he is worth trusting. And when the disciples watch this unfold before their eyes, they got it. This is the guy. That's the miracle. This is the day of the Lord. That's the one. Jesus is changing everything. The Apostle Paul phrased it this way. He said, with the coming of Jesus, the old has gone, the new is here. Nothing is ever the same. Jesus flips the world on its head, and in this very seemingly small, insignificant miracle, the disciples witness that. And they sit in stunned silence. That's the guy. 
Guys, I told you there's a ton going on in this story. It's not just that Jesus is pro-alcohol. There's a lot going on here. And I, 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 I'm going to be honest with you, I skipped a ton. <laughs> you got to come Wednesday, because there's a lot more even in this that we're not able to dredge in this time. But the one thing I want to make abundantly clear, because this is what John wants you to see, he included this miracle of all things. Because this miracle clearly reveals to us who Jesus is and that he could be trusted with your life. This miracle clearly reveals to us that Jesus doesn't just care about the mundane stuff of your life, even though he does. What this miracle proves is that he is the long-awaited Messiah figure, the one who will clean up the mess and fix all things. And more importantly, what this Messiah figure offers is far greater, far superior to anyone who has ever come before him and anyone that comes since. Jesus is far superior to Moses, far superior to David, far superior to any of the prophets. And so, to quote his father, listen to him. If you're wondering, okay, so what do I do with this, right? Everybody's itching for that one. Okay, this is great. All I got so far is some fun theological tidbits to pass out at my next dinner party, because you all do that too, right? You're all nerd? No? All right. Well, whatever. There's more to this. If this is who Jesus is revealed to be, as a person who wants to engage our lives, as we saw last week, he says, come and see. And if Jesus is a person who genuinely cares about the mundane details of your life, and Jesus is a person who not only cares, but has the ability to influence and guide and direct you, here's your application for the week. I want to encourage you to do this. Spend some time talking to him. I know that may sound incredibly simple, but I want you to think about this. When was the last time you sat there and talked out a problem with Jesus? And I don't just mean, yeah, yeah, I dump all my stuff on Jesus and I run all the time. Jesus, I need you to fix this, that, the other thing, blah, 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 bloop, and run. No, 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm asking you, when was the last time when you sat and you were trying to figure out what books you should read, and instead of going instantly to Google... You sat and said, Jesus, are there any books that I should be reading today? And I'm not just talking in the Bible, like anything. These seemingly simple, mundane questions. When was the last time you just sat there and took those things to him? Things that you typically turn to Google for. When was the last time you just sat there with Jesus? And I mean it, where you actually process a problem. Well, how, how do I deal with this guy at work tomorrow and this meeting that I need to prep, what would be the best way to love my employees, to love my wife, to care for my kid today? And instead of just, I need you to fix that, Jesus, get back to you, I'm going to go off with my life, you actually sat there and wrestled with it. If you remember last week, I encouraged you to do kind of the opposite. Last week, I had Jesus ask you a question. Remember, Jesus asked his disciples, what do you want? What can I help you with? What are you looking for from me? And I encouraged you last week, go and try and spend some time with him answering that question. And I hope you did, because it's a fun one. But this week, I'm asking you to do the opposite. Instead of letting Jesus ask you the question, I'm asking you to ask Jesus a question. But instead of just rushing off after you ask the question, genuinely sit there for five or ten minutes. Process it. 
just think it through and you go, well, I don't even know what Jesus has to say. Number one, I believe that the Holy Spirit will come and speak to you. But number two, if you're like, well, I need something a little more than that to grab onto. Jesus says, here you go, very simple. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, if you want to understand what the new covenant is all about, here you go, one thing. Love. Love other people. Specifically, Jesus says, as I have loved you. So there you go. You're sitting about, how do I love my children? How do I care for my business meeting tomorrow? How do I pick out the car that I need to go through? Sit there and process on that. Love. Now, I will also tell you, using that as a filter, uh, very often when I sit and I talk to Jesus about things and I ask him questions, I don't get the answer I want. Uh, Jesus does things very different than me. Um, For instance, like, I would love a Ferrari. And when I think about what kind of car I would like to buy, a Ferrari definitely comes to mind. That sounds wonderful. But Jesus goes, no, you have a kid. Yeah, minivan probably makes a little more sense in my world right now. But when I begin to process and I take these issues to the Lord and I allow his wisdom to begin to speak into these things, I begin to realize, man, what he has to offer is far better advice than anybody else. Guys, you don't have to just worry about the big stuff and save the big stuff for him. Yes, he is the God of the big stuff. But he's also the God of the small stuff. So my encouragement to you this week, being aware of the Jesus as John reveals him to us, He's a person who wants desperately to have a relationship with you. And not just on the big stuff, on the normal, everyday, mundane activities. So take it to him this week. And may you glimpse the same glory the disciples glimpsed. Let's pray. Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise for your son. We recognize you did not have to send him. You could have just simply barked down orders from on high or wiped us off the face of the earth, but in your infinite mercy and grace, you sent your Son to live among us, to love us, to die for us, to teach us. And more importantly, you continue to send your Spirit to continue to guide us. Lord, we give you praise and honor that you are a God who isn't just concerned about the little st- or the big stuff, but that you allow us to bring everything. And we want to trust and we want to see you as the disciples saw you. As this incredible, glorious person. Lord, help us to see you in that way and trust you.